text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 18. As we continue to work through the gospel of Luke. Luke 17, 7 through 18. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward will you eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. While he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Uh, Father, as we... Uh, come to this text and uh, this parable and uh, this healing that Christ uh, did. Father, I pray that our own hearts would be instructed, that you would uh, use this, uh, that we might worship you. Uh, and that you would get glory uh, from our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Elizabeth Elliot uh, might be someone you're familiar with. This is the wife of Jim Elliot. Uh, they were missionaries to Ecuador, to the uh, Alca people in Ecuador, a very violent uh, tribe, and uh, Elizabeth Elliot's husband was uh, speared to death along with uh, four other missionaries, and uh, she's uh, continued to minister uh, through this incredible suffering she's experienced in her life. Uh, her and the other wives were able to bring the gospel to these people that had killed their husbands and uh, lead a very violent people to Christ. Uh, She says in a quote that if you have a pen with you, I'd just write this down. Uh, She says, it is always possible to be thankful for what is given rather than to complain about what is not given. 
I'll repeat that. It's always possible to be thankful for what is given rather than to complain about what is not given. And then she says this, one or the other becomes the habit of life. The first part is true. The second part is sobering. There's a sense where all of us probably fall to one side or another. And I would have you ask the question to your own heart. Is the habit of your life to complain about what you don't have or to be thankful for what God has given you? The title of the message is, An Entitled Heart Can Never Be a Thankful Heart. An entitled heart is a sick heart. And it produces some of the most destructive attitudes and actions. When we think about the heart, the the thing I often uh, talk about when... uh, Uh, counseling someone is within our heart we think, within our heart we have motives and desires and our emotions are within our heart and our actions flow out of our heart. Jesus taught that we think in our heart, that our emotions and our desires come out of our heart and that our actions come out out of our heart. Which means our attitudes are connected to what we think. What you think affects what you love. What you love affects what you do. What you think affects what you worry about. What you worry about affects what you do. This is always going on inside the human heart And the entitled heart, the heart that believes and thinks in ways that says I'm entitled to something, is going to have emotions that are wayward and sinful and are therefore going to produce actions that are in line with that thinking. The entitled heart is often angry. Bitter. The entitled heart often experiences idleness. Not much motivation. Laziness can flow out of an entitled heart. Thanklessness comes from this sick heart. Unforgiveness comes from an entitled heart. It's an in- It's an idolatrous heart that cannot worship God or love others ultimately because it doesn't believe the gospel. An entitled people or an entitled heart is a heart that has either never heard the gospel or has forgotten the gospel. What we often say is that The way you enter into the Christian faith is by believing 
the good news of the gospel. And the way you live out your Christian life every day, the motivation for that life must be lived off the realities of the gospel. The gospel destroys any sense of entitlement which produces all those ugly uh, characteristics. In order to believe the gospel, repentance must be in the heart. In order for there to be repentance, there needs to be an understanding of who God is and who we are. And when we go to the Scripture, what we find is that God is a holy God. Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord. Consecrate yourself therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. God is a holy God. I think of uh, 1 Samuel 6, when the Philistines were sick of having the Ark of the Covenant in their possession, and they were getting tumors and people were dying and they realized it was because the ark was in their presence. And so they send it back to Beth Shemesh to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel see it, the people of Beth Shemesh, here's what we read. They were reaping the wheat harvest in the valley when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it. The cows were bringing the ark on a cart. And they begin to rejoice. And they call the Levites and to handle the ark and tell them that it has shown up. And then in verse 19, we read, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now just imagine if 70 men in Aberdeen were killed in one moment. Imagine the grief that it would cause 25,000 people here in Aberdeen if that were to happen. Will that happen in this small community? And here's what they said. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Could God be so holy that when they're unauthorized to look upon the ark and they do it, that God would strike 70 men dead? Could God really be that holy? And so what did the people do? we got to find out where we can send the ark away. Who can live with this God that is like that? I think of Job. Job 1.1 says this about Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, do you think God would make that testimony about you? Job was a righteous man. 
In Job 1.8, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job there, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. This is a man who made the covenant with his eyes with, that he said he would look on no other maiden in the land. He wanted to be that pure. This is a man when his children went out and partied, he would make sacrifices for them that God might be merciful to them. This is a godly man. And yet, as we read throughout this book, here's what we find Job thinks of himself. Job 9.28 Well, before I do that, let me just lift Job up one more step higher. You know what happens to Job. He loses everything he has and he, it culminates in losing uh, his children, all of his children. It's him and his wife. All of his possessions are gone. And in Job 1.20 it says, Then Job rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped in that moment. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I've never quite met a man like that yet, to the status of Job. And yet, even Job says this in Job 9.28. I became afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. Job knows God in such a way that even though when he compares himself to every man on the face of the earth, he knows he falls short. You won't hold me innocent. If I have to stand before the God of the universe, I will not be held innocent. He says, I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain, he asks himself, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye? If I go out in pure white snow and I take soap and I wash myself to get myself clean, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my clothes will abhor me. He's saying, even if I clean myself up the best I can, as soon as I put on a shirt, I defile the shirt. Job knows something of who God is. At this point, he doesn't even know God as high as he should, right? We find that out by reading the rest of Job. But his God is big and holy, and Job knows he's sinful. And then he says this in verse 32 of Job 9, For he is not a man as I am, then I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. See, he understands God is holy. Holy means set apart, separate. He's different than I am, Job says. And then he says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both. 
Let him take his rod away from me and let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. He says, if only someone, if only a man could stand between God and put his hand on God, the man be that holy, and put his hand on Job and stand in the gap, he said, then I could come and reason with the Lord and not be terrified. I begin every prayer with, in the name of Christ, in Jesus' name, I come before Your throne. Father, why? Because without a man who is God to bridge the gap, there is no access to the throne. And we know that Job was looking forward in faith. He knew his Redeemer lived. He knew one day he would stand on this earth in his new body. He didn't know how, but Christ showed up, the God-man, the man for us to stand in the gap. Job knew something of who God was and who he was and his need for a Savior. He knew enough that when he lost everything in one day, he still ought to worship God. Now, was Job a perfect man? No. Does Job end up sinning in the book of Job? Yes. Does God let him off the hook at the end because he suffered so much? No. God ups the ante. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? You tell me if you're going to call me into question. Where were you? And then at the end of the book, we see God show amazing grace to him as he restores children to him. And at the end of all that, would Job say, I would rather that that not had happened he would not. Why? Because the way he described the growing of his relationship through suffering was before I knew you from the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. He had a greater understanding of this holy and righteous God who is also gracious and loving. The religious leaders in Israel at the time of Christ, and the majority of the people of Israel viewed themselves as superiors. They viewed themselves as much better than their Gentile, uh, than the Gentiles that lived around them. In fact, they viewed themselves as though they were so special that they reasoned like this. They, they reason that we're such a special people that God even promised to send us a Messiah and a Savior. Now, He won't send it to the Gentiles, they were thinking. Surely He wouldn't send a Savior to the Gentiles, but He would send a Savior to us. It made sense to them. A Savior that, by the way, is going to save them from their political enemies and is going to heal their physical diseases. 
Well, we are the people of God. We are the special chosen ones. Surely it makes sense that God would send us a Messiah. In this text that we read today in these two accounts, we're going to see Jesus and, and Luke recording Jesus' life take aim at spiritual pride. The thing that was one of the biggest dangers to the disciples. And so Christ uh, puts them in their place. And when they're in their place, they can worship God. When they're in the right place, they can worship God. The reason why Paul in Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 9 says, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for they have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This would have been incredibly offensive to a Jew. Paul's lumping us into a, the same category, calling us sinners. And then he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. He says, no one will be justified by the works of the law. And then he says, but God's righteousness did show up. It didn't come from you guys being good enough. It did show up in the person of Christ. And those who receive that righteousness are those who have faith in Christ. So that it, towards the end of chapter 3, he says, what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And the Gospel challenged the spiritually proud because it put everybody in the category of sin. The only way we will ever realize or ever have entitlement destroyed in our heart is when we remember who and what we are. What does God owe us? Other than this, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we've earned. We've, etern we've earned eternal punishment from God. That's the only thing God owes us is that. And thank God for the rest of Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God, free gift being at odds with earned or wages, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And before we jump into the text, I just want to jog your memory back a couple months when we began 1 Peter. Remember at the very beginning of Peter's letter writing to suffering Christians, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. You were born again because of His great mercy. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then in verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Here's how you think. Here's how you wake up in the morning. And be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace of that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do you prepare a bunch of suffering Christians that are going to suffer at the hands of Nero? Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Christ returns. Which means, if you set your hope partially on that and partially in this world, guess what's going to come out of your heart? Grumbling, complaining, doubts about God's goodness. What did Jesus promise us? In this world, you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And so as we come to this text, let us have in mind the context of the people He's talking to. People that easily feel entitled. And he says this, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. Ouch. Boy, this strikes at the selfish, (laughs) sinful heart that feels so entitled to so many things. So the charge of the sermon is this. Serve our worship and serve God with gratitude and joy. Let's look at a servant's heart in this text. The true servant recognizes his position. He recognizes that he will eat. He won't starve to death. But he understands what he has been called to do. He sees God's timing in it. He does not feel entitled, but rather feels that he's doing a duty. When when the New Testament writers call themselves servants of Christ, that word is doulos. It means slave. And slave gets a bad connotation in our culture. But one of the safest things you could be in Jesus' day was a slave of a good master. 
If you were a day laborer, you might miss your meal. What if you don't get hired in the city square when it's time to go pick grapes from the vine? What if other people get hired in front of you? But if you were a slave of a good master, your master provided everything for you. It was a safe place to be. Yes, you had to understand the authority you were under, but there was comfort in that. And Peter called himself, and Paul called himself, a doulos of Christ, a slave, a mere servant of Christ. They understood what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples at this point in time in the ministry. A servant's heart recognizes where he is at in reference to his master. He doesn't seek recognition. Doesn't need to be thanked to do the thing he ought to do. And I just point out in this text, look look how it says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, which means you did it pretty good, you you didn't cut any corners, then say you're an unworthy servant. How many of you work for your employer and if you don't hear praise and thanksgiving, you start wondering if you're in the wrong job. We might be one of the most uh, ping-back oriented people there's ever been. We need praise. There's a reason why the like button on Facebook is the most looked at part of your Facebook. You want to find out, is anyone noticing? Is anyone pinging back to me? Is anyone retweeting my tweets? Does anyone care about me? Can somebody tell me they're thankful for me? Don't people see what I'm doing, the very thing I'm supposed to do, but at least someone come and praise me for it. This is our culture we're in. We're told we deserve the praise. We need the praise. And yet when we do that, when our hearts seek that, guess who takes the throne? Guess who gets the glory? You do. In Colossians 2.9, Paul tells the Colossian church that's tempted to add other things to Christ, like Sabbath and visions, and they need more. They need to follow Christ, plus not eat these foods. His argument's this, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a fancy way of saying Jesus is God, and you've been filled in Him. Which means Christians ought to be the least praise-seeking people there's ever been. Why? Because we're the fullest people there's ever been. You can't get more water in a full cup if the cup is overflowing. And if Jesus is God and you've been filled in Christ when you trusted in Him, and the most important being in the universe, God Himself, 
says, you are accepted. You're my child. You're forgiven. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You don't have to be like the rest of the world that is empty inside trying to fill it with praise for themselves and response from other people. The Gospel can destroy this insecure need for someone to respond to us in a certain way. There's a reason why in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version of it, he gets to the point of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, brothers, or he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And then he says, uh, I call you to love your enemies. At that point in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to the wide crowd anymore. Because Christians are the only ones that can love their enemies. Because if you're not full in Christ, you have to punish your enemies. If someone's unkind to you at work, you're not full in Christ, you have to give them the silent treatment to make them pay. You have to say some smart remark back and bring up a record of wrong to make them pay. But to Christians, he says, love your enemies because they can love their enemies because they don't need a person to respond to them in a certain way in order to love them. That's the power of Christ. That's what makes us shine in a dark world. How many Christians have been killed and persecuted at the hands of evil men while telling those evil men that they love them like Nate Saint did when he had the spear in his chest. And the words he knew how to say is, you are my friend. That's because Nate Saint was full. That's because uh, Jim Elliott in his journal in 1949, he died in 1956 when they got speared on that beach, said, he is no fool who gives that which he can't keep in order to gain that which he can never lose. You see, here's what he knew. He had his hope set fully on the grace that's going to be brought to him in the future. So he's willing to lose his life, to love people that were trying to kill him. And so a servant's heart doesn't need recognition and a servant's heart doesn't grumble. Now I want to make a distinction between godly complaining because the Bible tells us how to complain and sinful grumbling. Most often, at least in my life, the sinful grumbling is much more prevalent than the godly complaining. But when we look at like the book of Numbers, when God has just saved the Israelites out of Egypt and with miraculous power, three days into the journey, they begin grumbling and they continue grumbling all throughout their time in the wilderness. And in Numbers 14.26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble 
against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I'll do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. God hates grumbling because grumbling doubts the goodness of God. And he hated it in the people of Israel because he just saved them out of Egypt from their slavery. And they're immediately saying God's not good. And for us as Christians, (laughs) he saves us from slavery to sin. And yet less than three days later, we can be grumbling and doubting the goodness of God almost immediately. We can be so much like them, but God hates it. God opened up the earth and swallowed down people in Israel because they grumbled. They didn't like their position. They felt entitled to be able to worship the way they wanted to worship. They felt entitled to meat. It wasn't enough that God would feed them manna. And so they begged for meat and they begged for meat. And finally he says, fine, there's meat so tall. It's just stacked up. Go get it. Go gorge yourself with it. And they get it in their mouth. And while they're chewing it, many of them fall dead. We're a grumbling, complaining, entitled people in our sinful nature. But the Gospel can destroy that attitude and can help us John 6.43, Jesus said to the Pharisees, do not grumble among yourselves. The Pharisees were grumblers. Philippians 2.14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see that? It's we're like God when we don't grumble, when we don't dispute with each other, when we don't complain. Everyone else is complaining. And then all of a sudden, there's this beam of light that shines up out of a group of people that's different. Why is it different? These people are full in Christ. And then he says in in Philippians 2, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And then he says, Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he's saying, even if I die so that your faith grows, I am glad and I rejoice with you all Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's writing this from prison. And he's writing to suffering Christians, telling them that they should join him in this glad suffering in light of what God has done for them. That is our light. This is is why I'm frustrated and convicted 
but excited about this time that God's called us to live as Christians. Do you realize this? There's two options Christians have when their culture changes from a culture that held your morals and your values to a culture that's secular. There's two options. One is we can grumble and get angry and complain and want to destroy our enemies and reclaim power. Well, I'm here to tell you, do what you can do as a citizen of the United States of America with your vote, with your life, with your ad- advocacy. Do that. But here's an opportunity that is given to us today. You can be one of these people that says, I don't like what's happening because I think it's bad for the culture in this way, this way, in this way. But I love those people, those enemies. In fact, they're not my enemies, they're my mission. God's called me to suffer, maybe even at their hands, loving them taking the gospel to them. So the church has two choices. The world can see the church and say, yep, they're just like us. They want political power and they want to beat us down. Or they can say people that no matter what position you put them in, they are secured in Christ. And they can shine and not grumble and look at what they do have and what they can be thankful for from God, even when so much is being taken from them. And so I think we have an opportunity. I think we have an opportunity to shine as lights in a world that desperately needs hope. They desperately need to know, is there any hope? Talking to some parole officers, Many of their young people are committing suicide. The officers are depressed. There's so much darkness. There's so much suffering. Who is God called? Who has He called? We are ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. That's your title. God making His appeal through us. If we're waiting for some politician who may or may not be born again to bring light, he is not doing it. And it's not his job. It's your job to tell people of the hope that there is. And we can't do it when we're entitled and therefore we're angry and therefore we're grumbling. As Christians, we deserve one thing. Hell. We deserve hell. That's what Christians know they deserve. That's what instigates repentance. I deserve eternal destruction for my sin. But God loved me so much, He gave me Christ, that I did not get that. Which means all of my life 
forward is grace. The days that are easier and the days that are harder. Even after we're born again and saved, the best of our obedience, think of this, the best of our obedience and service to Christ is less than what He deserves, is it not? The best day you live on this earth for Christ, does it not fall short of what Christ deserves? And if that's true, ought we not do exactly what Christ says, call ourselves merely unworthy servants of a wonderful Lord? That means that for the Christian, all the Christian life is a life of grace. We deserve death the moment we sinned. Instant death, which means all of our life is a life of grace. Okay, we're only going to get half the sermon today, but I want to teach you how we can complain. Because the Bible even teaches us that complaining can be glorifying to God if we do it the way God prescribes. John Bloom from Desiring God Ministry said this, grumbling complains directly or indirectly. Our grumbling complaints directly or indirectly declare that God is not sufficiently good, faithful, loving, wise, powerful, or competent. Otherwise, He would treat us better or run the universe more effectively. Faithless complaining is sinful because it accuses God of wrong. But faithful complaining does not impute God with wrong. Rather, it's an honest groaning expression of what it's like to experience trouble, anguish, and grief in this fallen world, in this futile, or in this fallen feudal world. God does not mind this kind of complaining. In fact, He encourages it. He teaches us how to do it in the Bible. So there's a way that you can watch your society go down and you don't have to celebrate that. There's a way you can groan in seeing this happen. And John Bloom says, God gave us the lament psalms to teach us how to faithfully complain. I'll read one, Psalm 142. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. I'll just say this at this point. The Bible does not ask us to pretend like things are better than they really are. But that we can honestly tell Him the pain we're experiencing in a fallen world. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. You see this? It's a complaint in faith. Even as I'm failing, I know you know my way. 
In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. So there's real evil people out there. Look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to You, O Lord. See, sinful complaining says, is God even good anymore? I'm going to alcohol. I'm going to pornography. I'm going to spend money. My life's not going good. But here the psalmist says, there's no refuge that remains for me. I cry to You, O Lord. I say, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Saying, I know You're the only one that can make me happy. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. So there's a dependence on God in the complaint. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to Your name. The righteous will surround me, for You deal bountiful with me. God wants to hear your suffering. He wants to hear what you're going through. He just wants you to believe that He will deal bountifully with you because He will. The proof is His Son dying in your place. And so it's my prayer that we would be these shining lights that remember who we are. That we would serve Christ in such a way that doesn't need to be thanked from each other. Now is it good to thank someone when they serve you? You bet it is. But do I have to have that in order to serve you? No. I don't need that. So let us remember the Gospel. Let us be like Job where we remember who we are and who He is and how gracious God is. Let our faith shine And next week we will see about a leper, one out of ten, who wanted to worship the Savior rather than to just get what they thought was deserved from the Savior. Father, we thank You for the Gospel. Lord, we recognize that all of us fall short of the glory of God And all of our hope is bound up in grace. Father, we thank You that Your grace is so lavish that Your Word tells us that in the coming days in the eternal realm, You will eternally lavish the riches of Your grace upon us forever and ever. And all of it was undeserved. And so we worship You, Lord. Father, help us be joyful people. People who love our enemies and yet even grieve at the broken and sinful world and strive to make it as good as we can while we're here. Father, give us wisdom. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.